Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Tim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Welcome to episode 62 of Weekly Weights. I'm Alex Hayes. With me is Will Berkman. And with us today via Zoom is Dr. Mike Isratel. So we'll let you introduce yourself because we always butcher it uh, when we try and intro other people. So off you go, Mike. Cool. Is this audio only or no? Yeah, yeah audio, audio only. only. Okay, I'll stop waving them idiotically at the camera. <laughs> um, yeah, Dr. Mike Isratel, PhD in sport physiology, former professor of exercise and sports science. Current head science consultant for Renaissance Periodization, uh, writer of books, designer of apps, and competitive bodybuilder that's not very good, and competitive Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu rapper that's okay. Inventor of three-letter acronyms, or TLAs, as he likes to call them. Lots, lots of those. Lots. Sometimes even two- and four-letter acronyms. Yeah, just, that's a bit funny. just branching out. Yeah, we need some five-letter acronyms. Plus. It's a little, a little needy, right? Then it's, people have trouble remembering them. Yeah, but when you can pronounce them as a word, what's it called when you have an acronym that's a word? <sighs> like oh. neat. Yeah, like neat. Yeah, I forget. Oh, well. I forget what that is. Well, let's get, <laughs> let's get on to his area of actual expertise, which is adaptations to exercise. So Mike's going to talk to us today about what is the basis, I guess, of the phasic structure that we use in powerlifting which is the synergy and interference between um, adaptations when we train for different qualities. So first things first, Mike, do you want to just give us a quick rundown of what the basic adaptations are that underpin strength performance for powerlifters? Yeah, sure. So the most basic adaptation you can have is one which expands your muscle mass because muscle mass is what produces the force required for lifting. That's why we have weight classes in powerlifting. Uh, If we didn't, then it would be an interesting competition. Uh, and after that, what you want to do is essentially be able to make the muscle stronger or get more out of the muscle. So that requires some structural adaptations at the level of the muscle, which means you're aligning muscle fibers in certain directions and strengthening various connective tissues, tendons, etc. Then after that, you have the adaptations of continually getting more uh, strength out of the muscle via usually the nervous system. And that can happen in essentially two main ways. One is a variety of sort of performance uh, uh, adaptations of the nervous system, like allowing you to contract the muscle more fully or allowing you to synchronize motor units more effectively or actually just uncapping the central nervous system from usually protecting itself from uh, trying too hard, so to speak. And the next level of adaptations is um, sort of more intricate coordination of muscles to accomplish a certain task, which we can file under the term technique. So uh, basically, this essentially means that Muscles can change structurally and size-wise at the local level, and then at the central level, your ability to get more out of them via either basically nervous system enhancements or technique, which is really an enhancement but a more finely tuned one, uh, that's what makes you able to lift more weight at the end. So how how much overlap is there between training that is, say, most conducive to the the nervous system adaptations underpinning strength as opposed to training that is most conducive to hypertrophy you know a lot a lot but the overlap is not is not complete so for example um we can speak about sort of repetition ranges the loads and thus the repetition ranges that reflect training hard at those loads that are optimal for enhancing strength generally 
is roughly uh, training in the, oh, I'd say three to six repetition range. And um, that's going to make you the strongest over a long term. Uh, essentially, in other words, it, it enhances the alignment of muscle fibers and the performance of the nervous system the most. Uh, and then the optimal training to get you bigger is uh, for powerlifting specifically is probably going to be in the uh, five to 10 repetition range. I right? so if you're interested in uh, where those overlap the most, then training for sets of, you know, four to six repetitions is probably going to get you a large measure of hypertrophy and a large measure of strength. But if you um, uh, realize that you have lots of time to train months for a meet, you could probably do best to train uh, in one of the rep ranges for some of the time, adding new muscle, and then switch to training in another repetition range, the more strength-oriented range, more, you know, the rest of the time to take that new muscle and teach your body how to use it better. And then uh, prior to competition, usually several weeks uh, away, you probably want to switch to what's called peaking training, which is being that you're generally very strong, you want to uh, teach your nervous system how to be really, really exceptional at the practice skill of lifting com competitively heavy weights. So sets of one to three repetitions, very heavy, require a level of coordination and to be honest, a special kind of technique and setup and psychology that itself needs to be practiced and you get better at it. So what I mean here is this, if you've done a whole bunch of sets of uh, three, four and five, you're gonna be really, really generally strong, brutal, and you're gonna be capable of really, really good modern M's. But if we take, uh, you know, let's say two people or two clones that have been training the identical way of the same genetic, same lifestyle, et cetera, one of them uh, trains in just sets of three to five reps all the way up to a competition. The other person trains for sets of three to five reps, but about four weeks before competition uh, switches their training to mostly sets of one to three repetitions, very heavy. That individual is going to have a several percent uh, gain in their results on the platform because they're the same general strength, but are just really used to exhibiting it at very high loads. And you gentlemen would know from lifting yourselves that walking out with your five rep max is a different endeavor than walking out with your one or two rep max. Um, you're exactly how and where you place your feet. If it's a little bit wrong on a five rep max, you can reshuffle your feet once you've already walked out and you're fine, right, on a squat. Uh, that's not the same for one rep max. You place your feet wrong, the clock is ticking. Like every second that bar is on your back, it drains you. So you have to practice your walkout. You have to practice your breathing pattern. Um, the way weight shifts on your back forward or backwards is a little bit different uh, if it's your 5RM versus it's your 1RM, so on and so forth. So that peaking training is something that cannot be ignored and is, again, only going to provide real visible uh, improvements for people that are relatively advanced in the sport, but uh, it nonetheless has to be mentioned. So I would say there's essentially three types of training you can do for powerlifting. Training to put on size, training to get generally stronger, and training to be specifically peaked to actually show off your general strength. All right. So I think, I think the next sort of interesting question then is how does training to get strong impede, oh, sorry, training to get big impede your immediate performance in strength or does it? Because otherwise yeah. we could just train the same way all the time, right? And you've already said that's totally. not the best. Totally. So, you know, you could hypothesize that you could simply train for size sort of one part of the week and for strength another part of the week and get the best of both worlds. There are at least two, two main problems, or probably more, with um, trying to include size training in a strength training program. So if your goal is to increase your strength and that, you know, 
three to six repetition range, and you're also including training that is of a high repetition range for size, it's going to be a spillover effect in at least two ways. First way is that your nervous system is able to do a lot of things really well, but is only able to do one or two things optimally, especially if those things are related to each other. Just like if you're practicing German a lot, your French is going to start to be infected with some German words and vice versa. There's a specificity to practice. So if you are practicing lots of sets of eight, then your ability to really, really hit uh, maxes or close or really grind the weights is going to be a little bit diluted because your nervous system isn't optimized for uh, essentially, uh, how should I say it? Your nervous system is trying to optimize itself for two things at once. It's trying to optimize itself for sets of eight, for example, and it's trying to optimize itself for sets of three at the same time. There's a different activity in the nervous system for both of those. You know, if you try as hard as possible, get amped up as, as, as much as possible, generate the biggest block you can, you're actually not going to be very good at sets of eight, right, um, whatsoever, uh, because it's going to, each rep is going to just take too much out of you. But if you're doing sets of three, you had to better make sure each rep is flawless and exceptionally explosive, so on and so forth. So if you train both at the same time, the nervous system kind of gives you the meh, sort of in the middle approach, which doesn't make you the best of one of those. It's probably best to just get really good at one, milk out everything you can from sets of eight. Then once you have that new muscle, it turns out good news, the muscle is easily kept by strength training, though it's not enhanced by it. Then you can move on to strength training and just get really, really good at that. That's one problem. It's a relatively minor problem. The other problem, which is a bigger problem, is a problem of fatigue spillover. High volume training, it causes a massive amount of fatigue. And fatigue in every way possible reduces strength performance and the degree of strength adaptations. So if you have a high degree of fatigue and you're trying to do sets of three, uh, then you're not going to be able to have as, as, as good a performance on sets of three and thus generate as good of a stimulus and get as good of an adaptation and get as better, as much better. Here's a really good example. And this is actually something comical that I, I, I think it's funny when people debate this because the people that debate this seem to just not lift weights themselves. Uh, is the question is this simple. Uh, if you have to squat on Monday and Thursday, both days, uh, Thursday you have to do heavy sets of three. Do you want to have squatted heavy sets of eight on Thursday? Or not heavy sets of eight, or sorry, on the Monday before. Or, or, like, if you do lots of sets of eight in the squat on Monday, Thursday, you're going to be really fucking tired and you're not going to be able to have your best performance. And, and nothing fatigues you like volume. Uh, it's just more work is going to be really fatiguing. And all of a sudden, when it comes to Thursday and you're like, okay, I got to be my best because here's the thing heavy lifting isn't about just putting in the work. You could say bodybuilding sets of 15. You just get in there and just do it. It might not be the fastest. It might not be the greatest technique, but you get the work done and you get the hypertrophy, which is largely true. For powerlifting and for strength sports, that sets a set of three could be the difference between you get one rep or you get three reps based on just a minor deviation of fatigue. So when you are doing a strength-oriented program, you had better hope your fatigue is as low as is reasonably possible. And if you're simultaneously trying to do a high volume of work to increase muscularity, you're causing a high fatigue state. And that's just not conducive to really good lifting. As a matter of fact, a lot of people who have done sort of combo programs or done a mix of heavy and light lifting, when they get their first actual strength program that has no high rep work, they're like, wow, I feel so much better. I'm like on all the time. It's exactly the point. Yeah, that's something that we've spoken about a lot is that the heavier the work gets, the bigger the contrast from heavy to light days needs to be. So that's good. Absolutely. That's good to hear you say that. Um, how about over the course of someone's training career? How do these interferences between um, the training change? So for a beginner versus an advanced lifter. So the interferences, I think, are always the, about the same. It's just that the level of detectability becomes much more relevant when you get advanced. Um, you know, a beginner gets a whole lot of everything from training. 
Now, beginner will still put on more size with sets of eight than they will with sets of three. But uh, if you max out their size abilities in sets of three, it's really irrelevant, right? So I would say that if a beginner wanted, uh, for long-term development, it's a different conversation. But if a beginner wanted short-term gains, which is a little bit ridiculous, but nonetheless, people want this sort of thing. This is sort of just do sets of three or five because they get all the hypertrophy they're ever going to need for the several months that they're going to be training and all the neurological adaptations that are pertinent at the same time. Whereas for advanced individuals, yeah, there's going to be, you know, uh, the, the same sort of differences. But now because the gains are so much smaller, those differences start to become apparent. Um, and, and, and you're no longer maxing out your abilities anymore. Like, you know, for a beginner, sets of three, you know, multiple sets of three or multiple sets of five can max out hypertrophy. For an intermediate, they won't max out hypertrophy anymore. For a, they'll have some degree of hypertrophic benefit, but a very small one. For an advanced individual, uh, they're not going to have any degree of hypertrophic benefit. So if someone, for example, is a beginner trained with only, let's say, a set, a set of four program, you only do sets of four, and you start at month one and you go to month 85, <laughs> right? You know, the first year or two, you're going to get lots of hypertrophy and all the strength you want. Um, in the second several years, you're going to get lots of strength, but your hypertrophy is going to slow down. Several years after that, you're going to get no additional hypertrophy whatsoever, and your strength will still continue to climb a little bit, but you'll notice that you know, you're not getting the rep conversions you want out of your training numbers to the meat. So you'll be tempted to now do two things. One, raise your volumes in order to get more hypertrophy, which is like sets of eight or something, and lower your volumes and increase your intensities and increase, like you said, the pulsatility of your loading, have contrast heavy and light days towards the end of a block in order to become better peaked. So it's one of these things that um, it's almost interesting. Again, it's funny that people debate this. If you just train, you start out training sets of five, sets of four, and you're just trying to train your entire career, as a critical thinker examining various options, you will inevitably be led to a phase potentiated periodized model because you're just going to be missing some things and you're going to just want to add them in. Uh, plain and simple. Yeah. So essentially, the better you get, the the more need for there is for phasic structure. Totally. Yeah. It's, uh, let me give you another analogy. Uh, if you first start out uh, trying to train to be a race car driver, we can give you a go kart or just a Honda Civic. And because your technical skill in racing doesn't allow you to max out the car's performance, you're going to get as good racing in that car as you would in a formula car. As a matter of fact, you're not qualified for a formula car. You just kill yourself. Right. Or if you were smart about driving a formula car, you would just always underdo the formula car. And it would be like comical to watch you ride around the track at, you know, at 50 kilometers an hour. And they're like, what the hell is that guy doing the formula car? Like, well, he's not good enough to go fast yet. Right. But as you get faster and faster and faster, the kind of car you're driving starts to matter uh, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more until it's kind of funny. If you don't have a formula car, you're not going to win any Grand Prix races with a Honda Civic. Just like, you know, if you always train with sets of 10 all the time, you're not going to be the best power lifter that you can be. And almost nobody on the world stage trains with super high volumes and high intensities at the same time. So can we just take not the Formula One car analogy because I can't reverse it in my head. But let's take this example from the opposite end and ask why is it that beginners who just do, you know, train with their 10 to 15 RM do seem to get some impressive strength gains in the short term, whereas for advanced lifters, oh, you've kind of already answered this, but for advanced lifters coming off a period of 10 to 15s, they'll often be immediately weaker. Yeah. Well, because beginners, first of all, get such radical muscle growth responses in general that the muscle growth, that just having bigger muscles is going to just make you perform better. It's like taking a, a Honda Civic, taking it out, uh, the four-cylinder engine, and putting in a V8. It doesn't even matter if it's not optimized for a V8. Just four more cylinders is going to make your car go that much faster. You beginners start out with no pecs, and then they get some pecs just because they have bigger pecs. You know, like you can take professional bodybuilders that are enormous that never do sets of five or sets of one. They do sets of 10 only, but these guys can bench press 230 kilos. How the hell do you just bench 230 kilos? Well, your pecs are big enough. Just do whatever the hell you want. 
are they optimized for benching? Absolutely not, right? So one is just the grotesque nature of just the absolute amount of adaptation. They get. The second thing is when you haven't done any kind of training whatsoever, sets of 10 to 15 are neurological and technical practice for improving strength production. Like when people physically don't know how to lift objects up, any number of reps is pretty good training for learning how to lift objects up. For example, take a client who's never squatted ever. Their, their technique at the beginning of the squat is just going to be awful, right? And then not optimized whatsoever. Like imagine somebody gets up on their toes at the bottom of the squat. Can we talk about super suboptimal strength power or strength generation? Of course. It's not it's just like funny. Someone could, you know, you could walk into a gym and someone's squatting on their toes at the bottom. They're like, how am I doing? You're like, <laughs> good news. You could squat 100 kilos more if you just had in, you sat on your heels. You know, squatting for sets of 10 to 15, eventually your squat technique improves. Now you're sitting on your heels. Geez, that's 50 kilos right there, right? But the thing is, after a while, sets of 10 to 15, your technique is basically fundamentally good. And your nervous system has adapted as much as it will to the relatively heavy loads of 10 to 15. But now when you want to increase your one around, your nervous system needs more specific work to that. And that kind of work would be noticed in a beginner, but because everything is going up so fast, it wouldn't be noticed much. So I would say this, beginners who get crazy gains from just super high volumes and high reps, they could get better gains training more properly, but the better would be just by a little bit. The thing is, and when you're advanced that little bit is from the difference between qualifying for nationals and not even winning a local. So something that Alex and I have sort of said to describe how beginners are is that there's all these domains that contribute to powerlifting performance. You listed them at the start and it's like you're shit at every single one of them. So improving almost any one of them actually gives you quite a bit of marginal return. 100%. Whereas once you get, you know, towards the more intermediate, more advanced one, it's some of them might be reasonably well developed. Some might not be but without specific training that addresses any one of those given qualities. You don't get enough return to actually get the marginal benefit that justifies doing it. Does that make sense? 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so then the other end of that same sort of anecdotal evidence is the more advanced lifters who do go from doing very strength specific training and then throw themselves into some non-specific training with higher volumes and then come back to strength training and very quickly start hitting PBs. How do we account for those anecdotes? Um, well, they put on muscle and they had been training for, lower repetitions for so long that they had essentially maybe not maxed out, but come close to maxing out their adaptations from a nervous system and connective tissue perspective. And now the limiting factor there is that they don't have, uh, you know, they, they don't have a whole lot of juice left in their nervous systems to do much more benefit. And they could be in a situation where they've been training for low volumes for so long that their bodies are quite sensitized to hypertrophy. They're very used to low volumes. Uh, and they're not used to high volumes, which are very hypertrophic. So in, in essence, when you give them those high volumes, they respond incredibly well to muscle growth because they haven't been pushing that variable at all. And they end up putting on a ton of muscle. And once they put on that muscle, they come back, they start training for strength again. That muscle is now able to be optimized from a performance perspective, and they get huge gains which is another argument in favor of, you know, periodization is that, you know, people say like, why can't you just train a certain way for a certain while? The answer is staleness. At some point, you're either going to max out the adaptations or nearly, or it's going to be that adaptive resistance sets in because doing the same thing over and over and over after a while, it just doesn't yield you any better results. And so every now and again, switching to, you know, once you have optimized your current level of muscle mass or near so adding muscle mass is probably a good idea. And then once you've added a good deal of muscle mass and it becomes very difficult to add more, optimizing that muscle mass is a good idea, first of all, because it's going to make you stronger. And second of all, because the optimization of muscle mass, which is strength training, 
is now something novel to you and you'll get really, really good returns out of it because you're no longer very adapted to it. So a big part of fearization is over the long term doing the right thing, but also a big part of fearization is altering what you're doing so that you have the novelty effect always going in your favor. Which is, which is why, sorry, real quick, somebody could ask like, okay, periodization, I got it, but why not just train for size and strength and peaking all the time and get the best of our worlds? Let's say they bought our argument that there are three distinct ways you should train. Why not train all of them at the same time? Other than the interference problem, which we could say, okay, fuck, I don't care, uh, is the problem of novelty, right? And the problem of adaptation and, and, and uh, staleness is like, if you've been training for muscle growth and muscle growth and muscle growth for 10 years, gee, you know, it's gonna be really tough to grow muscle after a while. So maybe taking a break and switching to something else is a good idea. And now that we've opened up that paradigm of, okay, taking a break from training for something means you should be training for something else instead. And we have three things to fit in there. We can fit them in in such a way that they're always making progress, always making progress. And as soon as one arc stops making a lot of progress, you introduce another arc. So as soon as you stop gaining a whole lot of muscle, you start strength training. As soon as you stop strength training, uh, or start strength training stops gaining you uh, lots of strength, you might peak and do a meet, or you might go back to muscle gain and continue that cycle for so on and so forth. So I just, I'd like to sort of um, explore the idea of resensitization to growth training after strength just a little bit more. Um, is it that you no longer have the accumulated fatigue from prior hypertrophy training or is it, is it that the strength training itself is distinct and the pathways are refreshed for growth? What is it that actually explains that phenomenon? Just in a bit more depth, I'd like to hear. Uh, which which one per se the resensitization to muscle growth or resensitization to strength enhancement? I think resensitization to muscle growth because you've explained strength quite well by saying you now have this new muscular foundation to work on. So yeah, resensitization to growth. Yeah, so if you train for hypertrophy a lot, what you do is upregulate anabolic stimuli or anabolic pathways uh, like uh, mTOR, so on and so forth. But unfortunately, because you successively impose higher and higher volumes, or at least high volumes and continuously. You also slowly start to upregulate the activity of catabolic, catabolic pathways, such as antikinase, for example. Um, and uh, at some point, that situation is, uh, you know, one in which you're going in and training, and you're getting just about the same amount of anabolic activity as you are catabolic, which is really just not a good thing at all. And um, probably a good deal of that is just fatigue-related. So as soon as your fatigue drops off, then your AMPK signaling and other catabolic signaling drops off as well, and you're more anabolic again. But there's probably more to it than that. Uh, one of the things is that progressively sort of higher volume training beats you up in a way that you sort of could call it fatigue, but micro tears in the muscle, connective tissue, so on and so forth. And that can take a geo, sort of a long time to, to progress. Uh, it can take a month to heal all that stuff. So a month of lower volume training might be what you need instead of like a week, right? So, and, and there are numerous studies, at least three studies I know of so far that have demonstrated in one way or another the fact that you resensitize considerably to training when you take time away from high volume training. Um, one study in particular that's really interesting is folks took several weeks off three times within a training program when other people didn't take any time off through that whole training program. It was like 16 weeks. The people that took several weeks off, like two, two or three times within that program, uh, and off completely, not even low volumes, they were so resensitized to hypertrophy that their gains were so fast when they came back, they got the identical results as people who trained the entire time. So they basically trained a sum total of a one third less, but got the same hypertrophy. Gee, you know, like that's resensitization right there. I mean, um, say what you will. Now, is there a more better way to fine tune that? Do they need to rest that long? Maybe not. Um, did they need to rest longer? Maybe. 
did they would they have been better off just doing lower volumes instead of resting completely? Probably. Right? So, uh, and there's a couple other studies that explore that, but essentially through some combination of fatigue and other factors, which are a little bit mysterious, uh, certainly some of them are connective tissue, et cetera, et cetera, um, we have this idea that muscles can resensitize to hypertrophy, or the first idea is that they can desensitize. You know, you can't just keep getting the same gains all the time, all the time, all the time. And then once you back off, you let things settle, the adaptive pathways refresh, and then you have, uh, going forward, you can make better gains. Oh, I think that's a really good answer. Thank you. So we've start, we've sort of started talking about the fact that there is ongoing fatigue from from like long exposures to a given type of training stimulus. Um, how about the decay and preservation of training effects? So when we transition from hypertrophy to strength training, for how long does the strength training tend to preserve muscle mass, and how does that change over a career? If if it's proper strength training, you know, multiple sets in the the two to six rep range. Um, so far as our understanding is concerned, the answer is indefinitely. So if you put on muscularity through hypertrophy training and you just strength train thereafter, you probably keep as much muscle as you ever will. Now there might be a reduction in sarcoplasm. Um, you'll see, you'll seem less pumped, but uh, we have every indication that the myofibrillar content, the amount of actual contractile tissue stays stable. And um, it stays stable for seemingly forever, <laughs> as long as you keep strength training. Uh, and maybe forever is a bit uh, optimistic or a bit uh, uncalled for to conclude, but it's certainly many, many months, which means that if we are to do a hypertrophy phase of, let's say, two or three months in length, the question we can ask is, okay, how long can our strength phase be until we start to see decay of the underlying hypertrophy and thus the obviation of the strength phase entirely? The answer is there's no relevant time scale in which that happens. So you can train for strength for three months, four months, five months, six months, and you're not going to be losing size if you're training for strength properly. Now, the answer for peaking is different. For peaking, most of our uh, you know, insight at our renaissance periodization indicates that you know, after one to three months, depending on several variables, you are going to start to lose size from peaking uh, because peaking is very, very low volume training. Uh, and then if you start to lose size there, then there will be a sort of uh, a direct effect on general strength after a while. And then after the general strength starts to decay, there will be effect on your peak strength. So peaking is what I would call an auto-exhaustive process, which means you do it for long enough and it starts to kill itself. Strength training doesn't seem to be that. So, uh, so the only real reason why you would stop doing a strength training phase is two reasons. One, it's time to peak for meat. Or two, you just got as much out of it as you're going to get. Like it's not that you're getting weaker, it's that you're just not getting much stronger anymore, and it's sort of time to add more muscle. It's, it's kind of like, you know, you've uh, built another several floors of skyscraper, that's hypertrophy training, and then strength training is wiring all the water and the electricity and so on and so forth. Like, it's not that, you know, at some point you choose to build more floors on the skyscraper because the floors are decaying or the skyscraper is breaking down. It's that like, well, you've already wired all the electricity and water for the several floors up and it's just time to build more floors. Otherwise the skyscraper doesn't enhance its function. So I guess the take home message there is that the peaking phase should be shorter in length than the other two phases prior. Yeah, almost certainly. Well, that's actually on two arguments. One is because it has a self, uh, it has decaying property that can't be mitigated really well. Um, and the other one is that, uh, you know, there's only so much you can do in a peaking phase and its main goals are accomplished relatively shortly. Uh, for example, you know, if you're training a sets of three to six regularly, you know, gee, a peaking phase of sets of one to three just doesn't have that. There's not that much to do. You know what I mean? It's like, mm -hmm. it's like putting icing. Yeah. It's like, how long does it take you to put icing on a cake? 
like, would you, you know, the cake baking itself takes a while. The mixing, the hypertrophy takes a while. The putting in all the recipes, the, the baking, which is strength training takes a considerable amount. Can't rush that. But then like if the cake comes out, unless you're like doing some super kind of crazy art, you know, and let's say you're trying to serve a warm cake, right? There's the analogy, right? The cake to cool too much. It's not really good anymore. So you're trying to put on some, some uh, uh, frosting. I mean, geez, there's only so much you can do. Like you write somebody's name and put some little, you know, pearls on it. But after a while, you're just fucking about and there's too much frosting anyway. So a peaking phase is very similar in that, you know, you, it, it, it depends on the athlete's qualifications. The larger, more advanced athletes that have more technically defined, demanding uh, lifts need more time for peaking. Uh, in, uh, beginners need very little. Uh, and, uh, but somewhere in the one to three month region is, gee, just, you, you know, if you try to peak for longer than three months, let's say we gave you magic. Well, we don't have to give you magic. Let's say we just started giving you drugs so that muscle loss was not an issue, right? You just won't get that much better anyway after three months because you'll just be as, as adapted as you ever were to lifting one RMs, but there's just nothing left to improve. Your skill is as good as, as good. I mean, I don't mean to say as good as it's going to be, but the returns start to be incredibly incremental now. Like you're well used to peaking, so it just doesn't make any sense. You would be much better off using your time to going back to hypertrophy or back to strength and actually getting a better utility out of it. So yeah, peaking, it's not just the decay problem. It's the fact that you only need so many weeks of peaking until you're pretty fucking well peaked. You know what I mean? Like, and this could be something that you guys work with lifters. You look at your lifter, he's like, you know, smashing sets of like one at 95%. Technique looks flawless. He's amped up. Everything looks stable after four weeks. He's going to turn and ask you, like, when am I ready for a meet? You're like, man, motherfucker, you're ready now. You know what I mean? Like, we could, like, we could do this for a long time and put on a one and a half kilos every other week on your lift or something, but it would just be a, a perverse waste of time. I mean, with my own lifters, if I see them smashing singles at 90 to 95% too far out from a meet, I'm almost concerned because I think I could have spent more time training productively, but also I think they're more likely to burn out, right? You know, if you're sure, yeah. 95% deadlift, like you can only do that for so many weeks. I think you can do that for lots of weeks. Really? But you would have to, yeah, absolutely. You can do that for as long as you want. The thing is you have to insert a whole lot of light days in order to bring down the fatigue between those lifts. So yeah, you can probably deadlift heavy uh, once every two weeks or week and a half and repeatedly deadlift heavy, deadlift heavy, deadlift heavy. But then the next question is, why are you doing that? Like you're taking tons of time between productive lift. Like so fundamentally, peaking is also not very productive because the magnitude of stimulus relative to how much time you need per microcycle is really fucking small, right? Like you could be doing shitloads of sets of five in the deadlift and getting fucking gnarly strong, or you could be doing like two sets of one in the deadlift and need the same time between those to recover, right? Two sets of one just doesn't make you that much better. And after you're technically proficient at doing two sets of one, eh, there's just not much place to go. So I think, uh, unfortunately, there's many powerlifting programs that have been done which do that sort of fuckery peaking where they're sort of always peaking and they titrate their volumes and their exposures to high-level stimuli enough. They, re they branch them out far enough from each other or reduce the volume of these exposures so much that they can sustain peaking. I have a perfect example for you, Westside. Right, Westside is an infinity peaking pro. You guys know Westside? Uh, yeah, we know Westside. They're yeah. so, so, Say that again? I said they're like a meme on this show. Alex just disses yeah, them every three or four weeks. Yeah, well, they're a meme in real life. So, <laughs> uh, so you know, Westside, I mean, really, if, you know, because to your point, I mean, it's a great point. You, you're, you're skeptical of the idea that you can hold a peak for a long time. Don't be because you can hold a peak as long as you want. The real relevant question is why the fuck are you doing that? Yeah, right, Westside, they hold down. a peak for literally forever. And, and, and the, the, but what are they trading off? Well, they're trading off good, high-quality training that actually gets you fucking strong. So, uh, yeah, you can peak for as long as you want. It's not a proper peak, 
because to you guys, a proper peak is get in, peak, 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 compete, right? That you, you don't want to hang around there for long because if you have a concentrated loading that's well concentrated enough to peak you quickly, then it's going to be so much loading that it also unpeaks you really quickly. But you can feel free to stretch that out. This is the next question is why the fuck are you doing that? And the answer is there's no good reason. Remember one thing, gotta, if we're memeing about Westside, might as well say this. Louis Simmons used to, uh, used to brag, maybe he still does, but like, his, my lifters can be ready four weeks out and everyone else needs 16 weeks. I'm like, motherfucker, you got surprise powerlifting needs? Is that a thing in your life? Like, cop pulls you over and he's like, go up to a record total. You're like, easy. <laughs> I just need four weeks. Like, I, you know, maybe the least surprising thing in the world is powerlifting and weightlifting meets, which are planned years in advance. You know exactly when they're happening. You don't even need to do them. You know what I mean? It's like if you had to do a certain meet uh, you know, and, or, or not, then it would be like if something's going poorly in your training, Westside would be cool to be like, okay, guaranteed we'll peak you in four weeks. You don't even have to do a meet. Like if your meet peaking goes bad, you can just be like, I'm not doing nationals this year. I'm just going to do this regional meet and get my PRs. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. I'm thinking in my head now of like a pop-up stall that is the Olympics for weightlifting and the Bulgarians just come and like shit it in every year and the Americans oh, are fucking crap. Right. Like always. Fuck, I wish we knew when the Olympics were coming up. Oh, wait, we do. <laughs> Fucking 18 years in advance. <laughs> um, okay. Up until now, we've been pretty good and on topic. So let's just fuck that right off for a little bit and do some fun stuff. You started talking about... It's actually not that fun. It's kind of sciencey. Um, you started talking about changes in the angles at which your muscles align with strength training. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's changing the penation angle. So if you're... For listeners who don't have a backing in anatomy, some muscles run pretty much from origin to insertion. The fibers are just like a straight line. Some muscles actually run a bit obliquely from origin to insertion. So what's a good example of a pinnated, um, a pinnate muscle, like your vastus lateralis? Quadriceps. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So your quad, you look at the one on the outside and in like the really ripped bodybuilders, you see those lines and they're not running like knee to hip. They run a bit obliquely. Um, there's an advantage to that for strength because it means you can pack in more fibers in a given area. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. But at any one point, so you can pack more fibers to walk around and store uh, at any one point uh, if they're more oblique. But mm-hmm. when you're actually warming up and you want the fibers to perform their best, you want them to realign a little bit more from uh, origin to insertion. So funny enough, one of the elements of a proper warm-up, and this has been observed, is a, a slight realignment of the fibers more into the direction of force. So that's oh, really? That happens. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, hectic. Oh, yeah. So my speculative, yeah, cool. my speculative fun question was: people talk about like powerlifters having dense muscle. You know, that's like sounds like the most broy thing in the world. But they're like, oh, powerlifters are more dense, and bodybuilders aren't. And I think part of the idea of like you know having sarcoplasmic hypertrophy came from that. But do you think it might actually be the case that people who do a lot more of their training heavy? have these changes in the angle of pination. So they have a muscle that doesn't appear visibly as big, doesn't apply as much space, or sorry, doesn't occupy as much space, but is more densely packed. Do you think that's a thing? I don't know if it's more densely packed, but I think that because different exercises demand muscles to be different parts of the muscles to be used in the force applied in a slightly different vector, that power lifters have uh, uh, muscles that are penated more to optimize strength at that vector. So one thing you'll notice with powerlifters is, other than, of course, neurological adaptations, which explain most of this variance, powerlifters are really good at flat benching, but you put them against a bodybuilder of similar size on incline, and they're just a little bit better, maybe? Um, and you're like, what the hell? Because well, they don't practice the incline, right? And their fibers might not be penated in an optimal relation to that. 
So bodybuilders, if you take like five different chest exercises, bodybuilders might be almost as strong as powerlifters on those chest exercises, but way weaker on the bench press, for example. So I think that that could be explained a little bit by pination angles. Um, so I don't know if powerlifters have more dense musculature all over, but I think they certainly have a more appearance of more density with a bigger pination angle into the lines of force that are demanded of them in the competitive movements, uh, whatever deadlift they choose, squat, and uh, bench press. Okay, so then let's take that and start, take that idea at least of changes to the pination angle and start applying it to, um, to a phasic structure. In a hypertrophy phase, Alex and I often on the show say when you're doing hypertrophy work, you should probably do a lot of variety, you know, particularly say for your upper body stuff, like you should be pressing in a number of planes and doing lots of different movements. As we move towards competition, the specificity of our training naturally increases. You see those morphological changes then do you think that's a smart way of training or do you think you should preserve some variety in the movements that you use and the planes on which you press, say, for bench press training until closer to the meet? What would be the purpose of preserving variety? I don't know. That's why I'm asking you. We don't well, advocate then, for it. <laughs> yeah, I advocate for things that have purpose. So if you can't answer the question of what the purpose would be, you're off to a really shitty start, right? Uh, yeah. So, you know, what would be the purpose... <laughs> Say what? Yeah, Alex just said shit question, Will. And yeah, like, what a what a dick Dr. Mike is, huh? Yeah, um, really putting me on the spot. That's fine. You won't be coming back on the show. It's been a good 20 minutes, though. Yeah, fuck off. Oh, wait, I got an Australian insult for you, dog cunt. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about what Australians, we spoke to Bryce Lewis. This was like six or eight weeks ago. And oh. we were saying the funniest thing is in Australia, when you, like, you call someone a cunt affectionately in Australia... Like I would say to Alex, you know, what's up, cunt? And that's like nice. Yeah. But, you know, if I, go to, if I go to somebody I really fucking dislike and I say like, Wait. how are you, mate or champ? It's like the yeah, most famous insult. Like, so, you know, if I said, thanks for joining us today, Mike, champ. Pal. Yeah, pal. <laughs> you'd be like fucking well, steaming if you're Australian. I hope when we end the show today that that's how you end it so we can have <laughs> internet beef. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so the purpose of, so, so anytime, you know, uh, anytime we're arranging a program of any kind, we have to be able to look over the program and justify every single thing that's in there with at least some kind of reason. And when we're using variation in the off season of powerlifting, so to speak, in the hypertrophy things, there are some really good reasons to use uh, some other good variants. Probably the number one reason is that you're so beat up in the connective tissues and joints that, that use your competitive lifts that it's a good idea to just get away from them like if you could still build muscle using bench presses and low bar squats maybe it would be fine to keep using them the problem is you're all fucked up like how many how, mu how much can you really low bar squat until your shoulders and elbows start to fall off like it's just not that long right mm. so at some point switching to high bar isn't just because isn't because high bar may be necessarily better for hypertrophy or it offers some kind of magic and variation but it's just, just not low bar squats and that you're just too beat up to do it so that's at least one good reason. Another good reason is just because of variation and that lack of staleness, you get better hypertrophy in different exercises. Another one is a specificity of what kind of musculature you want to grow. For example, let's say you want to grow your chest. Let's say your triceps are great, your lockout's great, but your uh, bar movement off your chest isn't awesome, and everyone knows you have small pecs and they're weak, and so do you. <laughs> Using a conventional... Oof, that's rough. That's... Yeah, when you said, like, you have big enough pecs, you can do whatever the fuck you want, I was like, you know, tears in my eyes going, oh, fuck. Yeah. You know? You're like kicking a can down the road and there's sad music and stuff and you're doing the whole like trying to get someone to pick you up but they just keep passing you in cars and water splashes on you and that sort of thing. There's rain, clearly there's rain in this. Yeah. 
I've just um, an obsession with King Kong, you know, just beating my chest. Yeah, on the building. Mm-hmm. yeah. but no, that'll never be me. Yeah. Yeah, for a variety of reasons, including being, you know, a several orders of magnitude smaller, not an ape, not having big packs, which is really the more pertinent difference. Uh, you're not King Kong. Um, yeah, no hot girlfriend either. Yeah, that's, that's right. Uh, that, geez, you know, it'd be funny if we aliens came down to Earth and we'd just scoop you up and be like, why is he not King Kong? They're like, there are multiple reasons. The first and most obvious is insufficient pack size. You're like, fuck, goddamn aliens right through me. Like, what about that? I'm not a giant ape. They're like, yeah, that is secondary. Look at your small packs. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> just drop me back off on Earth. Fuck you guys. Get wrecked. Um, Get wrecked. So, yeah, I just fucking hurl some shit at them or something like a chimpanzee. That show. <laughs> rough very rough <laughs> let's go all right mark, sorry so uh for example in that case you could say well i'm just going to keep benching in a competitive bench because it's super specific yeah but the stimulus to fatigue ratio for your packs would be higher if you did wide grip pressing does that make sense because you need bigger packs mm. like if someone needs bigger glutes yeah they could continue to low bar squat and do deadlifts but maybe they would be better off doing sumo deficit pulling and doing some kind of sumo squat to get bigger glutes and then take those big glutes put them back into the competition movements and see these bigger yields so those are all really good reasons to have variation so the next question coming back to your original is if we're in the peaking phase or the late strength phase should we have variants um that are not uh, competitive movements there are a couple of reasons for that one you may need to do some volume to support musculature and you're too fucking beat up or you would be basically overstimulating the same pathways and getting a lot of um, not only fatigue buildup, but a lot of staleness if you just kept doing the same movements. So like Monday you bench press, Wednesday you bench press, Friday you need some kind of something to support your pecs and triceps volume. And gee, you could be a bench press, but that's a whole lot of bench pressing and maybe it'll wear out your shoulders and elbows. Or maybe it'll just make so much psychological staleness that you just won't want to bench press anymore. So maybe you put a dumbbell press on that Friday. So the question somebody could ask is, so why are you keeping in the variation? What's the purpose of the dumbbell press? Your only answer would be, the only purpose of it is not a bench press, <laughs> right? Um, it's like someone would, you know, can you imagine aliens asking you, like, what did you eat for lunch? And you're like this. And they're like, what did you eat for dinner? You're like this other thing. They're like, why? What is the benefit of this other thing? You're like, it's just something different. You have to explain to them why something different is its own benefit just through sheer backing off of the usual stuff. Like, because I'm sick of macaroni and cheese. Like, so there's nothing magical about the red sauce in this pasta that you use? Like, nope, it's just not macaroni and cheese. And they're like, oh, that makes sense. It's If you overdid mac and cheese, it would just be too much of the same thing. So that could be a good reason to keep in variation on a strength phase and a peaking phase. But here's a really cool thing. Your overall volume starts to drop as you get into later strength phase and especially peaking phase. What you take out will probably be more of the assistance, more of the variety, and you leave in the core lifts. So generally speaking, you have a lot of variety early in the metacycle to attend to all of those needs and to be different for its own sake. And as volume constricts throughout the uh, training block, then or throughout the macro cycle, really, then you're left with more often just more of the competitive movements. Uh, first of all, because we need them for specificity, but second of all, because of the fact that we're shrinking our total volume and the competitive movements have to stay in, the other ones get taken out. So someone could say, like, let's say you were doing dips in uh, your strength phase, but you're not doing dips in your peaking phase. Someone could be like, so why did you take out dips? And they could sort of in their head, they could be like, what is it about dips that's bad? Why are they not concordant with peaking? You'd be like, there's nothing wrong with dips. It's just that I have four sets of chest now to do versus six, and there's nowhere to put the dips, and I can't take out bench press. Does that make sense? So sometimes it works like that. Uh, which is funny enough, on my Instagram, I get a bunch of questions about why I choose certain exercises versus others. And a lot of the times the answer is like, because I just chose this one and this is what I'm sticking with. And like, but why not this other thing? I'm like, we can do this other thing later. It's just only so many things you can do in one mesocycle. Well, look, even though you're really cunty about my chest, 
what you just said really accurately summarizes a lot of the things Alex and I have been talking about on the podcast as well with program design. So that was fantastic. You should Thank have you. said he was, was champy. About champy about, yeah. <laughs> You've been a real fucking man, champ. Here's the thing. Honestly, mate, I'm going to say this. Is, <laughs> do you like that? Uh, yeah, that was good. So it's not, I think you're lashing out at other people because you have a small chest, right? I'm just pointing <laughs> out the obvious. And you're over here, oh, why do you, you know, like you're the guy with the small chest after all. It's your burden to carry or, or not carry because you don't have to text to carry it. <laughs> all right, we're gonna bird chest, Berkman. No, massive chest. That's so, true. I don't even know why bird chest. Bird chest is a thing. Birds have enormous fucking packs, man. Yeah, I don't even. I never understand when people say, "Oh, you have a bird chest." Like, it's like, like it's like hair. Have you God. ever eaten a fucking oh, chicken breast? Pigeons scale to human size. Uh, it was said should be able to bench like a thousand pounds or something. I, yeah, one of my favorite words is calipigus which means that you have a big ass, but it's, I think it's derived from something to do with like having an ass like a pigeon, which I find strange because they have a fucking massive chest. You know the word, Mike? Calipigus? I don't. That's a cool word. Um, yeah, now you do. Uh, yeah, now I do. Pigeons have enormous packs, and I think that we should genetically engineer pigeons to be human-scaled and with arms so we can see exactly how much they can bench and also genetically engineer to be trainable for the bench press. In fact, really spend tons of R&D 50 years to design nervous systems for them that uh, to them bench press training is what to us orgasming is pure ecstasy so not only we don't have to force them to train the bench press to answer this question they'd love it because as soon as you let them out of their cages they wouldn't live in cages their little homes they would run to the bench press and instantly begin I think, which would be happiness for everybody. I think my French bulldog is just about the best built bench press I've ever seen he is stumpy as shit man he's like like real giant chest short arms yeah time to get him on that bench man Mm. i I honestly reckon the chinese will be doing it before long they'll be gene doping like frog legs into their high jumpers and shit and then soon we'll have these weird like humanoid do you remember animorphs Mm. no shitty like book tv show series from when i was young where all these people had like just some qualities of animals you know like weird people and shit that ran fast it was good um horse dick no, too much. Not enough. <laughs> no, <laughs> not enough. Um, we're going to take a really quick break. Then we'll come back and we'll wrap up with the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. Weekly Weights with Dr. Mike. Welcome back to, back to episode 62. We're here with Dr. Mike and we're going to ask him the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. Are you ready, Mike? Yeah, that seems likely. Please continue. (laughs) (laughs) Good start. All right, question one. If you could take anyone out to dinner, dead or alive, who would it be? Oh, it would be my wife because I'm traveling right now in Australia and I really miss her and I'd like to take her out to dinner. That's so... That's really gay for a heterosexual man. You know, that's we've had Greg Knuckles... My heterosexuality is interesting, but not in evidence. (laughs) That was exactly what Greg Knuckles said to our disappointment. Let's say, and that's exactly what Matt Gary said, I think as well, was it? Let's say you could take somebody to dinner with your wife. Who would it be? So now you're like off the hook. You don't have to say her because if she did listen, you'd be in the shit if you didn't. Uh, Thomas Sowell. Who's that? Bro, if I have to tell you, you don't need to know. Is he an economist? He is an economist. Yeah. Um, So tell the audience who don't know. Alex obviously knows. He's very erudite. Um, yeah, tell everybody, tell everybody else who that is. 
Thomas Sowell is an economist and has written a variety of very excellent books. And he's probably, in my estimation, one of the smartest people that's ever walked the face of the earth. Um, he's from the United States. Uh, he's um, also got a, a baller, like default pissed attitude. And he really is irritated by stupidity. And it's funny to see him on interview shows because people ask him questions, which the very premise of the question is wrong and they expect a good answer. And he just schools them and with attitude and it's amazing. So I'd mostly just ask him like times he's been frustrated with stupid people and, and laugh about it. Seems like some of those people who are just ultra super duper smart are like, it's like a burden for them because people around really? them are so yeah. dumb and they just get Pain. pissed. Totally. Totally. I think there's a lot, a lot of smart people that don't get pissed. Is it just calmer genetically? But Thomas Sowell did not inherit that ability. Seemingly, he just it just gets to him. And is you know like uh, it's it's tough. You know, it's funny. Like um, you know, Lyle McDonald. You guys know who that is? Yeah, we know Lyle. We've had him on. Yeah, smart oh, guy. Gets pissed real fast. He gets pissed, right? He's super smart. And the thing is, like, you know, I can sympathize with him a little bit. Uh, not fully because I think he's fucking nuts, but like uh, a little bit because like. You get, if you get the same question by incels asked to you on Instagram like enough times, at some point you're like, Jesus Christ, can't you Google or read or anything? Like I, I've gotten questions on my posts which are answered in the post. You know what I mean? Like I'm doing sets of five today. And they're like, how many sets are you doing? I'm like, oh my God. Like, yes. <laughs> and, and, and then, uh, you know, I think like Lyle has seen like 30 years of that. So it, it sort of makes sense why he's like losing his shit all the time. So I, I, I see where he's coming. Yeah, Brett Gibbs used to do that on his Instagram. He used to just troll people for asking him the same questions. Sometimes, like, man. Just, people would ask is, him how tall he is. Like, yeah, people ask me that all the time. He just writes yeah. like 6'9 now. <laughs> I, I, that's what I do. I write like 7'13 and things like that. <laughs> uh, the thing is, like, I try to be nice and because, you know, these are new people coming in and they just they don't know. Can you imagine, like, you just found lifting and you're, like, looking up to this guy in the lifting community and you're like, hey, how tall are you? And he's like, go fuck yourself. And you're like, <laughs> I guess I'm not into lifting anymore, right? So I try to be super nice, but sometimes I, I, I joke around, but it's always for fun. You know, it's not like, go fuck yourself, you piece of shit. Like, it's usually like, oh, JK, but here's how tall I really am. Five foot seven, pal. <laughs> yeah, champ. <laughs> five, 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 six. Don't cut me any extra slack. I was just being nice because you agreed to come on the show. <laughs> Thanks, man. That's so kind of you. But my, my real height is in another place. You feel me? Nice. Penis height. The joke is penis size. Separate numbers? Correct. Like a snake, yeah. Yeah, right. Oh. <laughs> Question two. Question two. Who is your favorite athlete of all time? This could be any sport. Uh, that's a good one. Man, it's a real close tie, but I would have to say Magnus for Magnuson in nice. Strongman. Fuck yeah. Because um, he's so wise and cunning and brave and all that other shit it, he's just like an icelandic viking warrior and he always says really prophetic shit and maybe it's just i don't know like uh you know like you ask a, the average lifter or average aussie or american like hey how are you going to do on this next event and they're always like you know what brother i'm going to give it 110 percent. i'm going to win blah blah you know it's all just like sort of fake bullshit but they ask magnus he's like well you know we never can control the luck but I'll be doing as best as I can given the circumstances. And you're just like, oh my God, this guy's like full of fucking Viking wisdom. Like you could put that on a fucking poem and sail it out with a fucking dead guy in a ship. Incredible. Uh, Magnus for Magnus and by launch. And also he won like four times or some shit and always won very prophetically. That's who, um, that's who Matt Gary said that he looked like. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah he said him or the rock. I was like, fuck, this guy's got tickets on His himself. Big time. So much like him. Yeah. There you go. 
Yeah, it does, actually, yeah. a lot. All right, question number three. Which movie or television character do you most resemble? Is that really for me to answer? I think that's for other people to answer. No, no, no. We want to know your self-perception. We've had some pretty fucking inane responses to this. Fuck. Who's that? Yeah. This is hard. Yeah, I know. We warned you. We said you could have a moment to think, and you said, no, fuck it, bro, I'll fly blown. Oh, yeah. Look, if you gave me time to think, I wouldn't. Yeah, go ahead. This is good, yeah. The Thing from Fantastic Four. Oh, yeah, fuck yeah. Yeah, I've heard that before. Yeah, that's fine. You know, I'm not a huge fan of the thing. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, there's people I would like to be like, and there's people I'm actually like, and I, I just don't, don't interest myself with who I'm actually like. I just look at people who I'd like to be like, or just like, 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 um, you know, like Matt Damon, like born supremacy or whatever, like he, he's cool. But if you were like, Hey, are you like him? I'd be like, no, I just think he's cool. You know? Um, so, uh, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm going to answer with, uh, Vegeta from Dragon Ball Z. You know, I was going to say, if we got, if I got a TV and just fucked the aspect ratio real badly, you'd look a lot like Krillin. As if that is, you wouldn't take that as an insult. No, no, because like as in bald head, but you know, if yeah, I just made it really wide. That is a grotesque insult. Thank you. <laughs> well, thanks, thanks, champ. Yeah. yeah well, I'm so yeah, sorry. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> All right. Question four, pal. If your life was being made into a montage and you got to choose the music, what would you set it to? Oh, that's easy. Um, uh, Progressive House. Yeah. Specific track or just like just heaps? Of oh, there's, there's, there's tons of tracks. Yeah. Uh, funny enough, my life has already been made into a montage, which is on YouTube. Uh, it's the, what's it called? The Worth and Purpose Dr. Mike Isertel YouTube video. And it was the music there is, uh, is really good. It was made for that video. Yeah, it's lots of like slow motion shots of you sipping a protein shake, isn't there, in that one? Shit like and then that, you're like, yeah. yeah, you lift weights, there's sweat running down your forehead. This guy really hates himself and is sad all the time, but he works hard. No one knows why. Tune in never for a party. <laughs> <laughs> it is one of those, I think Omar Isoff makes the joke all the time about like sort of just, you know, your existential anguish and going to the gym. But when you talk about aliens observing humans, it would be the most fucking futile thing. Like people who do stone loading in the gym for time, you know, where you like literally put something up yep. on object, take it off and just do it over and over again. Yep. Anything, totally. anything more fucking meaningless. And yet we've yeah, chosen to make our career. <laughs> that, yeah. Totally. I like to remind people that we are all in the entertainment industry. We're all in the leisure and, and entertainment industry. So don't ever take yourself too seriously. Well, I think that's a really good bit of advice to end the show on. Um, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Your last job is to just tell everybody where they can find you online, how they can get in touch with you when they want to, and where the direct questions about your height. Yes. Thank you so much for having me on, by the way, gentlemen. It's been, I would say, a pleasure, but I'd be lying. It has been a waste <laughs> of 53 minutes of my time, as you sort of surmise. Um, I can be found at, at RPDRMIKE on Instagram. Oh, mate, can you stop laughing? I'm trying to talk. Um, mate. Uh, RP Dr. Mike on Instagram, um, RP Strength at RP Strength on Instagram is the company that I help run, the Renaissance Periodization. We also have a website. And if you're sick and tired of doing your own diet uh, and you don't know what the fuck to do with dieting, uh, let the AI machine that I helped to design, the RP Diet app available on iTunes and Android, do it for you for just $15 a month US. 
uh, and it auto programs your entire diet. You choose the foods. It tells you how much to eat and when. Reminders, all that really cool stuff. Um, diet coach in your pocket for fifteen bucks. How's that for a promo? And by the way, I think that translates to a thousand dollars Australian <laughs> per <laughs> second. You know, my yeah. client. Shout out Clarissa. She will listen. She's a big fan. Um, she did run the RP diet templates, so not on the app. One of the spreadsheets. Um, she ran it for like eight or 10 weeks or something, fucking killed it. Had really, really good body composition awesome. results. Trained the house down. I was kind of fucking pissed off she didn't ask me for help instead, but you know, that's all right. Um, no, she did really well. So RP diet, well approved. Thank yeah, you so a, much. I've had a few clients who've used it as well with great results too. So good yeah. stuff. That's awesome. I know the guy that designed it. Yeah, now we've spoken to him. Yeah, yeah that's pretty cool. That's another feather in our cap. Now we have lots of feather, but yeah. I would take it out. I wouldn't brag about these things. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Mike. So I'm Will. I'm W.BerkmanPT on Instagram. I'm Alex. Alex Hayes underscore lift. We'll chat to you guys next week.